All right, we screw it. We cut our nose. Yeah, it, it has to be you. All right, guys. Hello, and welcome to another Crackle Comics uh, weekly episode. We are doing retro issues, or <laughs> we are doing throwback, our favorite issues, whatever. I can't do an intro. Uh, my name is Dan. My name is Vincent. I'm Mike. Now we'll get into the actual show, and I will start us off. So back to my screen with Action Comics number 775. This is famous issue. What's so funny? Wait, what the hell is the name of this issue? Uh, yeah, what's so funny about truth, justice in the American way? That's what it's called. Sure, write down the title of this book. But really, and this is written by Joe Kelly, art by Doug Mankey, kind of. Really, my only negative comment, my my main criticism here, if anything, is that this is actually a correction in the credits here, because it's Doug Mankey and Lee Bermejo being credited for pencils. And then there are literally six inkers, which I'm not going to name. So that causes some inconsistency, but it's not like super obvious. Like on certain books, you know, when you have that round table of artists, especially inkers, you'll see, ink, you'll see, you know, it comes out as a mess. But I don't think that's super apparent here, but it, it's definitely a thing. So the story here, there's a new team of superheroes called the Elite. They have appeared in the scene. They're using very brutal methods, and they're led by the edgy Brit Manchester Black. And we get introduced to kind of Clark Kent's reaction because he's doing some reporting and runs into Jack Ryder. And his other identity as the Creeper is not remotely referenced at all, but he kind of prods Clark on how the media and public is reacting to the arrival of the elite. They get on President Lex Luthor's radar, which is, you know, one of, the, one of the major markers of the status quo of this era in this issue. Otherwise, it is almost entirely standalone. And Lex kind of teases the upcoming confrontation with Superman because he sees that, you know, there could be something interesting in his favor here. Um, but mostly he's kind of taking a non-interventionist perspective for now. And Superman goes to go confront a Japanese team of villains, but the elite takes care of them real quick. And that's how they all meet. Manchester Black, he's a pretty decent approximation and satire of some of the titles and characters, which would be around this era. Uh, I'm talking about like the authority and he's, you know, he's a Brit, he's wearing the Union Jack, he's got like earrings and a trench coat. He's very much an approximation of some of the characters and writing of people like Warren Ellis, uh, Garth Ennis, Mark Miller, you know, characters like Billy Butcher from The Boys, which is actually a couple years after this, like Spider Jerusalem from Transmetropolitan, and obviously the elite as a, as a crew, as I said, is parallels to authority and later on the ultimates to a, to a level. But of course, like, this isn't shit-talking the authority. It's just kind of like, it's a tet. Like, the authority is a certain response to you know, Silver Age Superman. And then this is a response to the authority. It, and it even does a decent job of balancing the debate, like as far as lethality and methods in, in superheroics and just kind of the larger morality stuff removed from powers. And along the way, Clark has great conversations with Pa Kent and with Lois. And the latter one maybe, but neither of these can really happen if one of them is dead and, and the other one is not married to him. So that's another marker of the status quo at this time. And he watches some kids playing Superman versus the elite, like on the playground, which is reminiscent of some of the stories of clan members 
who would see their kids playing Superman versus the Klan. And we talked about Superman smashes the Klan on our show previously. And I probably uh, brought that up. So Superman runs into the elite again. He slaps one of them on camera. And that kind of lets them frame the narrative, spin the fake news wheels, essentially, and set up the actual fight. They're going to actually confront each other. And at first, they just totally whoop Superman's butt. But he turns the table and just demolishes them all. And it ends with Superman just ripped. His costume's all ripped. He's dripping in blood. He's, he's all battered. And he's very angry. And he confronts Manchester Black. And he asks him, and this is where you get the first bit of like, you know, very meta dialogue. He's like, how does it feel to be deconstructed, to watch dreams die? And it's presented that he gives Manchester Black brain surgery by using his x-ray vision and his heat vision to go in through his eyes, through his uh, like pupil, I guess, and neutralize his powers by like giving him brain surgery. But it turns out it was all a bluff. He just like messed with his brain in a different way to give him a concussion. And all the other characters didn't die. They're, they have headaches or whatever. And Superman makes a speech because, of course, Black was capturing this all on camera, even though Superman demanded that they are in a safe area. So they're on a moon of Saturn or whatever. And that's basically here. And, and he finishes the speech with uh, a similar kind of pep talk, an inspirational moment. And then it ends with the quote, which is the title of the story. And... That's pretty much it. This is one of my favorite issues. I mean, obviously, I picked it here. This is one of the standout modern Superman stories for sure. And then, yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to say. I'm interested to see, uh, hear what Mike says. But then as far as the weird stuff is that there's kind of a sequel to this story in an issue of JLA, also by Joe Kelly. And then Joe Kelly launches the Justice League Elite Maxi series, which was like kind of totally not necessary. I guess ostensibly they wanted to have a just another Justice League book with some of the other heavy hitter characters that were not in the main book at that time. But I'm not even sure if that's accurate. Um, but like Wally West and Oliver Queen were on that team. And I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, they may have been on the JLA at that point, but I assume not if they're in, if they're in this, but that book's just kind of pointless. And there, this was this single issue, which granted it's a little bit oversized was adapted into an animated film, which I believe Mike, and some others may eventually cover uh, on this channel. And I think the movie's fine. Like a lot of those movies, it stretches things out a bit. I think there are moments in the movie that are pretty compelling. Like the actual fight towards the end, pretty awesome to actually see in movement and animation. But I think some of the, some of the moments here and just the overall tightness of the script is a lot better in the comic, even if there are some nitpicks in the art, as I said. I mean, like the moment where you see Superman like like get up off the ground and he's like bleeding and his, his, he's ripped and everything. It's not like a perfect illustration or anything, but it's a very powerful moment, which they're just not going to be able to really do in the animation as far as I'm concerned. Well, I will say that they did bring Joe Kelly to write, back to write the movie, but they tried to do the Doug Mankey art style and it doesn't really work that well, but it is like... I'd say like top three, top five of the DC animated movies. Probably number one as far as the Superman ones go because there weren't a lot of Superman ones. But I mean, yeah. I think I think the All Star uh, movie is pretty decent as well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, with All Star though, it's so long that they had to cut out like half the book. Yeah, yeah, it, I, it's actually an interesting comparison between those two. Obviously, Superman stories, obviously Hallmark Superman stories. One they had to kind of trim. One they had to expand 
they try to get close to the source material. And I think there are moments where it's cool to see it voice acted and in motion, but you just can't beat the comic. Yeah. It, um, yeah, it's, I was, this is my first time reading this, uh, knowing its existence, watching the movie. I watched the movie like a while ago, so it's hard to recall what exactly the differences are, but yeah, this is easily one of the most important Superman stories of the two thousands and modern day. Um, and something that should be kind of sought after track it down. I don't know where necessarily you'll be able to find it in like a dollar bin, but, uh, definitely might be able to find it in a back issue bin somewhere, but everything you said, yeah, completely agree. It's very good. Yeah, I wrote like a critical essay of this like eight years ago. I have no idea where it is, but I figured I'd throw that out there. All right, I will let us move on. Our next issue is Amazing Spider-Man number 500, written by J. Michael Straczynski with art by the illustrious John Romita Jr., uh, one of my favorite artists. Although this era of John Romita Jr. is a little little sketchy in some points um so anyway this issue was the very first comic that i ever received back in december of 2003 i remember going to my local comic shop back in my parents hometown and walking in with my dad and my sisters after church (laughs) and um we got hooked up with this issue the salesperson was like this is a great issue for a little kid to get into so i jumped into it i read it and i probably read this issue three or four times um it's been sitting in a bag and board ever since. But anyway, this issue is also part three of the Happy Birthday storyline. So uh, this is collected in a bunch of different formats, uh, most notably the new Omnibus that came out last summer, I believe. So this issue opens to Peter Parker looking simultaneously at his younger self right before he's bitten by the radioactive spider and also looking at a much older version of himself standing outside of Aunt May's grave in the pouring rain, surrounded by a bunch of armed men who are looking to arrest him. And, you know, throughout this whole time, we kind of get Peter, like, you know, looking back and forth at both, both, I guess, out, you know, both points in his life and kind of contemplating, you know, whether him being Spider-Man was worth it. You know, we get the older Spider-Man fighting these armed men and he actually holding his own for a while until he's shot right through the the gut. Um, And we kind of get a nice splash, not really a splash page, but a nice panel showing that, which is pretty graphic, I guess, kind of like a shadow of his, of him getting shot. And then we also see um, him about to approach his younger self, trying to stop the spider from biting him and just thinking about, you know, had he, just stop this you know would all the pain go away would all the people that died you know with him being spider-man go away and you know he kind of considers that until the young version actually does get bit and we get a nice cool little splash page between uh spider-man and peter parker 15 year old version kind of like both you know yelling in pain for different reasons but kind of mirroring each other which is kind of cool but Peter's still kind of like stuck in like this time warp thing. So we then get a montage of Peter following Dr. Strange's voice. And this whole time, he, Dr. Strange keeps telling him, follow my voice, follow my voice. And um, we get a bunch of fights that Peter's kind of fighting chronologically through. And I'll just go through a bunch of them here that kind of pay homage to a bunch of different issues from the original Amazing Spider-Man stuff. Um, so the first one is fighting Sandman, and we also get a little Easter egg of the vacuum cleaner that he uses to defeat Sandman for the first time back in Amazing Spider-Man number four. We get him fighting the Vulture, where he's actually thrown into a water tower, and that is in Amazing Spider-Man number two. 
So those two are kind of flipped. Uh, the first one probably should have came with the vulture. We then get a montage of him fighting the lizard where he actually comments that the lizard doesn't know who Peter Parker is yet, which I thought was a cool little Easter egg thrown in there. That's a reference to Amazing Spider-Man number six, where he actually goes down to the Florida Everglades to fight the lizard. We then get him fighting Electro with him commenting about wearing rubber gloves. And that is from Amazing Spider-Man number nine. Uh, we get the death of Bennett Brant, which is uh, Betty Brant's brother back in Amazing Spider-Man number 11, which basically sealed the death of whatever potential relationship was going to be sparked between Betty and Peter at the time. Because at that point, Betty blamed Peter or blamed Spider-Man for the death of her brother. So Peter was just like, well, I guess I can't date her anymore. So that kind of sucks. Uh, we get him fighting Mysterio, which is kind of accurate to this whole thing of all these different illusions. Um, that's an Amazing Spider-Man number 13 reference. We get him fighting the Hulk, which is an Amazing Spider-Man number 14 reference in the cave. I believe it was like for like a film shooting or something like that. Uh, the Green Goblin shows up in that issue as well, I believe, for the first appearance, if I'm not mistaken, which transitions into... Another issue coming up, actually, but before that, we get a reference to If This Be My Destiny, where we get to see John Romita Jr.'s visual interpretation of a very classic Steve Ditko panel. And on, obviously, we end with the death of Gwen Stacy from Amazing Spider-Man number 121, which kind of brings Pete to a breaking point in this whole journey through the to the present. He kind of like has to gain his bearings over that pain of that memory of losing... Gwen Stacy and then Pete arrives back into the present where he's able to because of all this stuff going on um, there's a little bit of a gap in terms of understanding here for me because I didn't read the first two parts of this story so there's this whole plot going on with Dormammu and because Pete went back through the past he was able to prevent Reed Richards from giving Dormammu power which would have led to this whole doomsday event or something and they end up saving the day that's all it that really matters um Strange gives Pete this like little trinket it's like a gold like house keychain type of thing and he goes home where he's greeted by Mary Jane and MJ or Mary Jane and Aunt May sorry I can't talk and, you know, obviously he celebrates his birthday and he uses this little trinket to talk to Uncle Ben for five minutes, which brings some nice closure to the relationship. Um, Uncle Ben, you know, just asks him, you know, is he happy? And despite all the pain and the suffering that he's had with Spider-Man, uh, he's still happy with the life he has right now. And, you know, I really do like this issue, you know, nostalgic wise for me, it's it's a great issue to have. And I don't know, it does homage to the character, obviously, of all the references. Um, obviously reading these issues afterwards now definitely makes me appreciate all of it a little bit more, but yeah. What'd you guys think? Don't particularly love this issue. I think it's a little long stretch because it's 500 and we have to stretch it out to get to that double, that double sized. I liked seeing John Romita senior coming back for the uncle Ben pages. That's cool. When JRJR is starting to lose it, but still looks good. I mean, obviously a lot better than what things that we would see now. But this is, yeah, it's the ending to that weird happy birthday story with Strange and Dormammu that I wasn't really hot on then and just, like, not hot on it now. <laughs> not that I remember much of it. I was just like, eh. It, it's, it's, a, it's an anniversary issue. It's a 500. Is that how it comes off to me? Yeah, I, I think it functions well in the anniversary issue in that oversized celebration of history way. But... And it's fun. I mean, that splash, the double page splash is just insane. Um, that's like one of the all time, at least as far as details and in superhero books and everything, that's one of the all time 
splash pages. But it's, yeah, it's not really at the top of my list for JMS. The background plot stuff, which, you know, Dan alluded to not being totally clear on, like, that's, and this is still early on the early in the run where, like, it's still amazing, but JMS kept forcing in Doctor Strange, um, you know, up to the very end with Doctor Strange kind of being tied into One More Day. Yeah. And he, he was, like, trying to go for, like, a backdoor pilot for a Doctor Strange series he was going to do next, which was, like, at a certain point fully announced. And eventually he, like, did a miniseries, but it's not canon. It's, like, a different Earth. They, and it was never really interesting. But it's a cool issue. And then, yeah, uh, the uh, end with MJ is nice to talk about, you know, similar to my Superman issue. Status quos, which are superior. Now, my other connection to this issue of uh, Legacy of Spider-Man, we had the Spider-Man connection and the, the celebration of history. Now we have the wizard connection. With Astro City one half written by Kurt Busiek, art by Brent Anderson. First, I want to note that technically the name of the series, the first two series of Astro City are technically called Kurt Busiek's Astro City. I don't know why. And this is a half issue, which almost all of those were originally offered through Wizard. It was like their gimmick. Though it's been, re I think it was reprinted, um, you know, even besides the paperback, like Wild Storm did a direct version themselves. This is an easy recommendation for a standalone issue because it's pretty much totally standalone. It's very short. It has themes and ideas that apply to the superhero genre as a whole if you're a Marvel or DC fan. And this the Astro City in general, as a series, if you're not as familiar, it's often about the human moments of superheroes, but particularly the moments of the the human moments of the humans on the ground who are who live in the world of superheroes and are affected by them. And this issue asks the question. How does a crisis level event like crisis on infinite earths affect the common man? So when earths collide, when dimensions die and time is reset, what's the collateral damage and what is like the emotional collateral damage? And this is the story of a man named Michael Tenisek who has vivid dreams of a woman that he's never met and no one remembers. He asks his coworkers, his friends, people he grew up with, and no one has any idea who the hell he's talking about. But he, like every time he falls asleep, he has these memories, not just of her, but like of them together, of dancing with her, of the way, you know, her hair smells, he knows her name and all these details. And he feels that he has this deep history with her. And eventually, as he's just racking in his mind and losing it, he's confronted by a figure named the Hanged Man, who's basically a analog of like the Spectre or the Phantom Stranger, those kinds of characters. And it's revealed to him that this character, this woman, Miranda, was actually his wife, but she disappeared from the timelines when everything was reverted to the status quo after one of these big events. And we see some of that big event. There's like, it's the kooky Astro City, like analog characters. There's like some Captain America type dudes. And then there's like a Kronos type dude who tries to challenge the cosmic beings. And then, you know, the, the turn, the tide of the battle turns and everything's fixed but there's always a slight mess up. And, you know, there's sometimes a slight mess up with superheroes like, oh, you know, now the Legion, you know, now Superman was never Superboy when he was young. So what happens to the Legion who is inspired by Superboy? Or, you know, in Crisis, there's the, I don't know what Earth, but there's, or no, in Zero Hour, there's the Batgirl There's the Barbara Gordon who never got injured in Killing Joke from a different Earth. And then, you know, obviously, she disappears or goes back to her 
dimension at the end of the story. And there's all kinds of things like that. And you have multiple Superman and those kinds of ideas. And so, yeah, his wife disappeared when this, when the crisis was over and he has these kind of phantom memories of her, which are incredibly, you know, vivid to him, but it's, it's phantom. Um, and hang demand gives him a choice to erase his memory and forget her to ease his suffering or, or, you know, that the angst inside and Michael chooses not to take that option. And Hangman kind of says inside, like, you know, he does this every once in a while and no one, no one makes that decision to forget. And this is, I don't know, this might be my favorite comic of all time. It really helps because it is so standalone and it's short and, uh, it's got a, a very emotional, you know, very emotional elements, but also it is like a very nerdy thing as well, tying into those kinds of concepts. So this, uh, you know, if I read this sometimes, kind of hits me like a truck. It's a really, really good 16 pages that does pr provide, like, what does happen when these giant, like, you know, world-smashing calamities happen. And it's not something that you'll get in a modern Marvel or DC book, which, like you said, it's one of those things that make Astro City a really cool series to to look at. I've read, I've read, I think maybe the first 10, 12 issues. Um, and then I jumped off. I mean, I'll have to get back to it eventually. Uh, the, the renumberings and like the shifting around kind of make it hard to follow what I have and I haven't read it from my memory. But yeah, it's a really, really good issue. Yeah. And Dan, you've technically read this before, right? Do you remember anything whatsoever? Yeah. I was going to say, didn't we read this as a group yeah. in the club? Yeah. I didn't Who's uh, who's the artist again? Is that Alex Ross? No, Brent Anderson. But Alex Ross does all the covers for Astro City, and he helps with like art direction. Okay, that's right. Yeah, I do remember reading it, and it like like you said. I mean, it, it is a lot. There isn't a lot of like superhero stuff going on in this book. It's just a lot of real, yeah, dramatic stuff. I can't remember honestly though a lot of the details, but that's all right. Batman Gotham Knights number thirty-two. Devin Grayson, Roger Robinson. The story called 24-7, and it centers around a normal day in the life of Bruce Wayne. And this is set right after Murder Fugitive, as Bruce is now cleared, and he's coming back to Wayne Enterprises. So we see him take his job back at the head of the head of the company, and he's got to go through all these meetings. Um, but like, it's the spin of what do, what does Bruce do during his day daytime? So he's trying to push clean energy renewals for different companies in Gotham, and showing and getting people to sign up for this initiative. He hires a man out of jail who's turned his life around after Batman stopped him and provided him a second chance, and he takes the the friends and family of his his parents, mostly his mother, uh, to like this giant lunch. He has like this $1,400 lunch bill. And apparently he does this every day where he, uh, he takes all of the friends of his parents out to lunch, which is pretty cool. And he convinces another rich socialite to build like a rec center instead of a Starbucks with the notion that he can put his name on it. So they'll remember hit that person like over a golf game. Another, there's like a moment where he gets a guy who's like a, like a male guy. He's gotten to G Gotham city university and he's like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. And he's like, well, you work for me. So we do have a, a scholarship program. And he's just like, make sure to give me a, a graduation card. And, and it's just like, it shows Bruce's human side. We get him. He sends uh, new Kevlar vests to the Bloodhaven PD. He spends, he eats dinner with Lucius Fox's family. Because at this time, Lucius Fox has, I think he, he got a gunshot from someone. So he was recovering in the hospital. So like Bruce was looking after his family around that time. Um, and then at night we do see him go on patrols Batman, but 
that part of the book is really showing how Batman kind of affects the rest of the city. He he kind of watches Robin from afar. We we see a couple celebrate Batman Day, which is the anniversary of their. Um, one of them was saved by Batman, so they're having a toast to that. Um, you see him check in with Oracle and actually asks how her dad's doing, um, because this is at a time where Jim Gordon is retired from being the commissioner of the GCPD. And it just, and then like my favorite moment is like there's a, a Gotham City beat cop who's coming to his back to his pregnant wife after a shift at like 12:30 in the morning, and it's a nice night out, and he takes a walk with her around because he knows that around this time in their area, Batman patrols from like 12:30 to 3 a.m. So no one dare go outside or make a make a problem there. And then it ends with him at like 5 a.m. with Alfred and thanking Alfred and going back. But it, it's one of those issues that like Roger Robinson gets to draw a lot of different scenes and. Vince, we we really enjoyed Robert, Roger Robertson's work on Azriel when we were doing the No Man's Land show, so it's cool to see him do more Batman work here. Devin Grayson was always a good mid-tier Batman writer that I think has been underrated or kind of lost in the shuffle around that time. So it's always nice to see a good human story with Bruce Wayne, as it seems now that we kind of have to make Batman always like this non-human character that has no emotions, which is very disappointing. And then there's a Batman black and white story with. Uh, by Mark Asquith and Michael William Kaluta, and it Batman helps out the Treehouse Trio and fights a T-Rex mech, but that's not really the important part. The main story is the more important thing, which makes it one of my favorites. And I just remember reading this in the uh, murder and the Bruce Wayne fugitive trade and be like, this is just a really good issue highlighting Bruce's human side. Yeah, I think the I didn't get to around to reading this. Um, I'll read it at some point because in that murder fugitive thing, but interesting to compare Roger Robinson which we've talked about on our No Man's Land podcast. And uh, the black and white, sto- the fact that this is a Gotham Knights issue with a black and white backup is interesting because we had a spirit issue a couple episodes ago, which had a spirit black and white following this formula. I should also mention that this is during the time when Brian Boland is doing all the covers for Gotham Knights as well. So you get a really nice Brian Boland cover of Batman and Bruce Wayne leaning next to the, the grandfather clock, which is a pretty cool image. I think I made it this week's uh, Cool Cover Friday on the Crackle account, so go see it there. Moving into our next issue for this week, we have Criminal, Last of the Innocent, written by Ed Brubaker with art by Sean Phillips. So, fun fact, I'm actually reading The Fade Out right now, which is by the same exact creative group, and I'm loving it. Uh, I actually binged, read all seven trade paperbacks of criminal well, not all seven but the first seven trade paperbacks of criminal so this uh storyline the last of the innocent definitely stood out to me as one of my favorites um and i'm gonna recap the first issue from this storyline so the issue opens up to a man by the name of riley richards who is heading on a train to go see his dad who has stomach cancer and before we d- get to that though uh riley is actually dodging some people working for mr hyde a kind of like a mobster guy that riley owes money to and mr hyde is actually a character that is in other criminal story arcs so they kind of like coincide with each other but don't really tie in too heavily with each other i guess each character but riley richards is just commenting on kind of like being a little bit of a cynic when it comes to his life and the city he lives in and he goes on this train out to this you know little town that he came from out in the countryside and to go see his father and his mom um his father's in the hospital obviously so once he reaches his hometown he meets up with his childhood friend uh, lizzie gordon and his other friend named Freakout. Uh, at a kind of like an ice cream bar or something where they catch up on all the happenings uh, since he has been gone. And we find out that one of his friends, or I guess one of his 
classmates has become a cop. But during this whole issue, we get frequent flashbacks to Riley's childhood with Lizzie and Freakout, and more importantly, his wife, Felix uh, Doolittle, in a very Archie Comics style designed by Sean Phillips, which I think is a pretty uh, clever way to explain the story, especially considering how the end of this issue goes. Um, it's kind of, you know, throws you off guard a little bit. So, um, we also find out during this whole discussion, you know, Riley's thinking about his wife, Felix, and come to find out that he's he actually saw her cheating on him with uh, a guy by the name of Tracy, which I believe, I think that's his name. I think that was a mutual friend of them, I guess, growing up. And Riley can't stand him. He thinks he's a douchebag or whatever. So um, Riley stops by his mom's house later on that night to come home. And they find out that his father has passed away. So the next day, I guess, or the next few days, the funeral is held. And we get more of a glimpse into Riley's relationship with his father-in-law, with Felix. You know, it's weird because, like, Felix, I mean, Riley obviously can't stand Felix for cheating on him. But there's certain things that surprise him about her like the way she acts sometimes i guess one of them being that the fact that felix sleeps over at riley's mom's house and they sleep on a single bed together which is kind of fun you know kind of weird i guess to say we get one archie flashback which is a little raunchy i won't go into too much detail about it here but um that is kind of like the dichotomy about doing that type of art is that you expect it to be archie comics like i guess g-rated stuff and it turns out to be really like you know Criminal's not really uh, recommended for kids, I would say. So, but the next day they wake up to go back to the to the city. Felix is like, I don't want to miss this train. I don't want to be in this this town for another night. And Riley is just looking at her, and he's just like, I'm gonna go kill my wife because I can't. I need to escape the bitterness of my life. And I think all this is kind of spurred on by the fact that he went back to his hometown and you know kind of brought back all the memories of everyone else he lived he lived with and how much he enjoyed being with them so yeah this is a great issue and uh highly recommend anyone who's into crime comics or crime stories in general definitely give criminal a look so this issue just isn't no it's criminal so it's 10 out of 10 always that's it yeah it's like that's the thing like i don't know why we bother reviewing anything by Brubaker and phillips at this point i'm just gonna say 10 out of 10 at this point it just gives me an excuse to to bring it on a show well, yeah, I'll add, I mean, Phillips is just incredible here. There is a, a, an extra level to this series, this miniseries, this story with the Archie, uh, you know, switching art. And I actually, I'm not sure because it's like close to Archie, but not really. I think, I'm, I wonder if he's trying to do a mix of certain things. Like there could be some Archie, but also the way he does it, I'm almost thinking whether he's also pulling in some peanuts but it's it's beyond the art flashbacks and everything like that. I mean, it's all here. There's they meet at the chocolate shop and share and you know talk. You have banana splits and smoothies. There's a reference to them starting a band back in the day, and also a, re- a recurring thing in at least in the criminal stuff that we've talked about is there's a fun moment where the main character reads some comic books and is flipping through comics. Obviously, there's a criminal arc which we talked about as we went through it on the show which is way more related to comics. Um, and, and obviously the whole art thing, there's, there's a meta element there, but it's not in story. But yeah, the, I think this is, I don't know if it's the best, but this is the most, you know, this is the most standout of the original criminal stories, like the pre-image stories, just because of this artistic angle and that kind of uh, parallel to Archie. 
Flash number 64, Mark Wegg, Greg, Greg LaRoque. And this is Flash Year One, Born to Run Part 3, which I think most people just refer to this as Born to Run, which is the origin story of Wally West that's updated after Crisis. And Wally West is enjoying his newfound power of super speed and being Kid Flash. And he kind of views the Flash as a surrogate father to him. But this is at the point where he still doesn't know that the Flash is his lame Uncle Barry as Wally doesn't fully like Barry Allen, but still idolizes the Flash. And uh, he's trying to learn how to phase through a wall and he keeps like not getting it. So he's trying to master it. And at the same time, uh, they're having to meet Iris for lunch and, he and Wally even tries to set up Flash with Iris. Obviously, the Flash can't do that because he's Barry Allen, which is pretty funny. And also, Wally's dealing with the fact that he's going to have to go home back to Blue Valley, Nebraska soon, and he doesn't want to leave uh, Aunt Iris, who to him is, in quote, his best friend, because Wally doesn't really like his family. Uh, but at the same time, the Flash and Kid Flash are on the heels of these copycat crimes that are going around the city. And looking at Iris's photos on her wall, realizing that it's a reversed image, Wally figures out that it's actually Mirror Master, and he goes to try to confront him by himself, but he gets captured. And now he's bait for Barry. As the Flash is coming in, He's if he steps on this contraption that Mirror Master has made, he's going to get zapped with a deadly bolt of electricity. So he steps on it, but uh, and he, Wally thinks he's dead. So he, well, that's what makes Wally being fully able to master vibrating through solid matter. And he gets through his like little mirror prison and goes to beat down uh, Mirror Master before he's stopped by Barry, who realizes that he tricked Mirror Master himself using mirrors which is a pretty cool way to take him out. And then on the way back to bringing Mirror Master to jail, uh, Wally's like kind of collapses and he realizes when they take him to the doctor, they find that Wally's powers are, reje are rejecting his body and that his super speed will lead him to death if he keeps using it, which is kind of a great cliffhanger. And I think this is, I think this whole story is only four issues. So this gets, this gets wrapped up in the next one, but yeah, Born to Run is one of my favorites. Uh, it's really, really good. You can track that down in the Flash by Mark Wade volume one trade paperback which is kind of, it lays the groundwork for what Wade's run becomes, because in, in part, in the in the second volume, you get The Return of Barry Allen, which is like the quintessential Flash story. But this is all great stuff here, especially Greg LaRoque's arc and Mark Wade really kind of laying the groundwork of where they're going to take Wally West with his, with him later on. Yeah, you, um, Born to Run is a good story. The, the little... Stupid trivia I will note is that Wally learned Barry's secret identity in Flash number 120. So this takes place before then, uh, you know, retroactively. Our next issue has a interesting title, Four Color, maybe Four Color Comics number 386. But really the title of this book is Uncle Scrooge in Only a Poor Man. This is written and drawn by Carl Barks. So Four Color was an anthology title from Dell. Think of it basically like DC's showcase, but insane. So it's it was mostly one-shots and tryouts, things that could possibly get further series or, or and stuff like that. But it released often multiple issues every month. It released over a thousand issues and it, it got up to like 1300. So Action Comics is still has a long ways to go to beat Four Color Comics um, as the longest running uh, American comic book or highest numbered, I should say. It went double numbering on some issues, like way before Mar Marvel started fucking around with that shit. So like if you had Uncle Scrooge number 15, but it could also be four color number 320, and it even skipped issues. There were just missing numbers. 
so, but a big bulk of it, like, like one out of five issues or so were related to Disney because that was a major license they had. And these books sold like crazy. Like this was up there with the peak of Superman sale. And this is for this particular issue is, I believe from 1952. And Carl Barks was not the only one doing these dozens and dozens of Disney stories, but even like shortly, basically at that time, there was someone that fans referred to as the good duck artist, but they didn't know who it was because there are no credits in the story. And I'm pretty sure Carl Barks' like actual identity wasn't revealed, like fans didn't figure it out until like maybe like the 70s, maybe even the 80s. And then eventually he, it became more wider known. He was the guy that everyone loved. He started going to comic conventions. Eventually Disney hired him for some more things. He did these like lush, amazing paintings that sold for like ridiculous money, everything like that. So this is a 32 page story. He did, he did a few of these longer stories and this is, this might be longer than all the issues we read on this show. Probably not. We have a few more oversized issues this week as well, which we commented on last week. Um, he also did a ton of 10-page stories, which you guys uh, did not luck out on getting one of those this week. And he eventually, towards later on, he did a lot of single-page gags. The actual story here, Uncle Scrooge, he's very obsessed with all his money to a very unhealthy degree. The Beagle Boys show up and they're setting up a heist by buying the plot next to his house and building a giant building and they will drill through the basement to steal his money. And Donald Duck and his nephews come to try and help out Scrooge and they're, and Scrooge is kind of leading Donald along like, hey, you should become rich and then you'd be happy like me. And there's all these teases of how Scrooge made his money. He's like, referencing these things which we have no idea about and some of that will eventually years later be delved into in the life and times of scrooge mcduck which is kind of like this extended collection of stories or an arc by the next great duck artist don rosa who's more like 80s through 90s whereas carl barks is like 40s through 60s and there's all kinds of back and forth tricks between duck crew and the beagle boys they get all the money in a reservoir and then they fight over a dam and eventually in the end scrooge comes out on top and it's not really explained how because scrooge's whole gimmick and if you're familiar with ducktales you know this he likes diving and swimming in his money which makes no sense of course so in the end he dives in his money and says hey the beagle boys you should try it. it's really fun and they just all knock themselves out because they jump on a huge mountain of metal and they don't explain that, even when the the uh, nephews ask, like, what the hell just happened? And Doc, Donald and his nephews, they want their money. Scrooge is stingy, and but they get their money, and he kind of gets told off by his family. And it gets to him for, like, one panel. For one panel, he has, like, a self-conscious moment and realizes that he's, like, a cranky kind of an asshole. And, but then he dives right back into his money. And I think... I'm, in, I'm very interested to see what you guys said. I, I did force Mike and Dan to read this this week. I think this this felt like a long story, but it didn't feel trotting to me. It, I mean, it, it felt like a full story with lots going on, um, similar to you know what we'll say about some, you know, some of the older books we read, and we won't say that about some other books where it, it feels stretched and long and, and painstaking. And I honestly think this is like not 
it's obviously dated, but it's not nearly as dated as you might think. Again, this is 1952. This is like almost, this is a decade before the Fantastic Four. And if you read a Superman issue from 1952, I'm pretty sure it would feel twice as dated as this. I think this holds up pretty well. I think the writing and the art pretty solid. Uh, I thought this could have been so much worse than it was. And I, I agree with you on that on that statement about if we were made a Superman issue from the 50s, it would probably feel like it was from the 30s as well. This was fun. Uh, pretty good gags. Like, it it surprised me with kind of how smart it was. Like, I thought this was going to be very kiddie, but it was not. Like, this was pretty good in the terms of all ages, I felt. So I, I really enjoyed this. Plus, the art was... I, I thought the art was really, really great. Plus, I liked the... The stuff, kind of the bit, the the bookends, the the beginning thing and the ending thing, I thought were pretty good, like short stories as well. Yeah, I mean, kind of kind of similar to what Mike said. I mean, the art looks very very much in the same style as, like, I guess obviously the same style as what like you know Disney was shooting for with these characters at the time, like in animations and stuff like that. So it didn't feel like a departure from that at all. Uh, one other thing I I like to mention too is that I was, I'm looking through this issue right now too as well, and I mean there really isn't like a lot of like narration. So like the, I feel like with something like that, like it really moves the plot forward and you're just, you're just stuck in like the present moment, which for a story like this uh, definitely helps out a lot with that. But yeah, just really fun and a different realm of comics that we don't really get a chance to read a lot of on this uh, channel. So. Yeah. And, and through these retro weeks, through these favorite issue weeks, I feel like that's kind of been a low key theme because we've talked about war comics um, we've talked about what was uh, Western comics. We haven't touched on them, but obviously there's a the romance comics or another factor. And then you have this where it's like Disney comics, all ages comics, funny animal comics. And all of those things were major parts of the, of the industry, major parts of the medium in the West from, you know, the beginning up through, I don't know, like the late seventies, eighties or so. And the, you know, there's bits and pieces. Obviously, we read criminal crime comics used to be a huge thing, and, and they're still good crime comics. But uh, it's just interesting how the industry evolved, and, and you don't see these comics selling millions of copies. My next issue: Incredible Hulk number three forty-one, written by Peter David, art by Todd McFarlane. This is called "The Savage Bull Doth Bear the Yoke," and this immediately follows the famous Wolverine fight, aka Vicious Circle, which I was kind of one of my other contenders but i figured i'd go for the less obvious one and the but vicious circle was also the first issue of todd inking himself so this is it's still that run and everything but it, it's a slightly different era and this also follows in to other books where todd moving forward up until a certain point in spawn he much preferred to ink himself and, and it's a totally different look than someone else inking him so hulk and Banner are on the run with Clay Quartermain and Rick Jones They're because they blew up Gamma Base and they're attempting to get rid of Gamma Bombs. They run in, the Hulk runs into a monster who's been like killing cows and bothering people around this small town. And it is the Man Bull whose first appearance was in Daredevil number 78, which is footnoted here. Um, I forgot that it was, I thought it wasn't for a minute, but Hulk nicknames him Savage here. And I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure this characterization is accurate. There's a chance that it might not be. I haven't read that many other Manbull appearances. Um, but the Hulk is basically compelled to deal with Manbull uh, on behalf of some of the people in this town because Clay wants to get his brother's help to find the locations of Gamma Bombs. And they have a big slugfest. And 
I think this is one of the great issues. And, and right after Vicious Circle, which is to a certain extent even better in this respect, where it's a fight which uses storytelling through the, through the fighting and, and through the minimal dialogue and everything like that. And this is what people will talk about, superhero, a good superhero comic. Uh, people will talk about this kind of concept with wrestling um, and even actual sports like uh, boxing, everything. It's all, a lot of it is the under the, the storyline underneath and all the emotions and everything. So Man Bull essentially represents the old style dumb Hulk, which the current Hulk, who is like the smarter gray version comes out at night. He's ashamed of that part of himself and that past. So he's taking out that anger and frustration on the man bull and eventually gets to a point where the man bull asks to be killed and he's kind of doing like a suicide by superhero kind of deal. But the Hulk, you know, obviously, or not necessarily obvious, but the Hulk is like, I'm not going to kill you. But then the crowd with their torches and pitchforks show up and the Hulk is put in a position of taking pity and trying to defend them. But then he kind of gives up and starts to walk away. And then the crowd gives up because they realize that the man bull starts crying and that he's part human. And that's, and, and again, the Hulk walks away like, like most good Hulk, you know, like every classic Hulk story. And, you know, this is pretty much what you want from Hulk. Uh, it's got a narrative within uh, an awesome fight. It's contrasting the Hulk with another monstrous figure it has the the reaction of the public of the common man to these monsters and the Hulk real like, I mean, ultimately the Hulk doesn't really affect anything here. He just gets in a fight and then walks away. And then the subplot here is the, the leader is manipulating a shield character named Trump, absolutely no relation. And the, that part with the leader has been brewing in the background, basically the entire stretch of the Peter David run with Todd McFarlane. And it eventually comes to, a climax, I think it is the end of McFarlane's run. Uh, it's the arc. I think it's called Ground Zero, and it's it's the big leader thing and everything like that. I love Todd McFarlane's art, but not on Hulk. I've always kind of felt that his art looks a little dirty here, especially in his faces. I think he uses too many accent lines, and everyone's face kind of looks scrunched. The Hulk and Manbull look fantastic. Like The monsters look great. But like I've never liked his humans until until later on. Like he he gets it down pat and like in Spider Man Spawn though. But like yeah, it's always kind of looked dirty in that aspect to me. But this is a really good issue. The 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 action's great. Plus this is Peter David delivering a really good story, ex, uh, kind of exploring uh, hu humanity in a different kind of way. And you know we'll see that a little later with some X Factor stuff. But yeah, I mean this is you know down pat another good issue of Hulk and eventually I'll sit down and read this omnibus and enjoy yeah. all of it. And, and there's a sprinkle or two of humor as well, which especially at this time was kind of David's calling card. So I think this is a great encapsulation of this run. And if you pair it with the previous issue, the Wolverine fight, like these two issues, I would say are, are the highlights of this uh, David and, and McFarlane chunk. Our next issue here is the an annual from Matt Fraction's run on Iron Man, drawn by Carmen Gian Domenico. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's a really complicated last name, so sorry about that. Oh, I'm sorry, Carmen D G Gian Domenico. Sorry about that. Uh, I knew I was gonna butcher it. Anyway, so this annual is all about the Mandarin. Although once we get through it, I'll kind of have my thoughts on that. But the Mandarin essentially kidnaps a film director of one of these move one of them 
one movie that he enjoys seeing in the theater. Uh, his name's June or Jun, um, and his wife. They he kidnaps them both, and he forces them. He forces June to make a film recounting the Mandarin's life, basically like a biopic or whatever. Um, so the Mandarin feeds the director lies about his life, uh, most notably in the beginning, stating that he was born to an aristocratic family, um, when instead he actually was from a low life from a brothel. So uh, yeah, that's a pretty dark part of the Mandarin storyline. I don't think we've had a lot of backstory on before this run. So interesting to bring that up here in this annual. Uh, so Jun, um, upset at the lies of the Mandarin, works with the production crew to create a film that exposes the truth of the Mandarin's origin, much to the hesitation of all the other production crew members who are all also captured and threatened with their lives. So they're all like, we don't want to do that. But there is actually some scenes, you know, while he's shooting this new version of the film where he actually is fighting with the Mandarin on the direction of the film. And honestly, I'm surprised that the Mandarin actually like lets him speak about some of this stuff. There is actually a, a discussion at one point um, with the Mandarin demanding that the end of the movie showcase uh, the death of Tony Stark. And just keep in mind at this point. During this run, I believe Tony Stark and the Mandarin have not met like directly yet, I don't think. So um, it is a huge boil up to this storyline with the Mandarin. But at the premiere of the movie, uh, Jun tries to slip away with his wife, who has actually now grown loyal to the Mandarin. During this whole time, the Mandarin has kind of kidnapped the wife and has made her like a... I don't know how else to say this, but pretty much like a prostitute kind of um, for the Mandarin. And... She ends up actually killing Jun, her husband, um, after becoming loyal to the Mandarin. And uh, as Jun dies, the Mandarin finds out, and he's actually genuinely upset that uh, Jun died because he actually enjoyed his films um, that he made. That's why he chose him to make his film of his life in the first place. Um, so honestly, the Mandarin is kind of like a little bit of a kind of takes a little bit of a backseat in this story, I believe, a little bit. Uh, Jun is more so the, the main character in this issue, obviously, because of the whole kidnapping and stuff. But I don't know. I just feel like the Mandarin doesn't really get a really good opportunity to really explain and, like, develop any type of, like, motivations in this annual, I feel. And with the way this is set up in this run, this comes at least two or three storyline, like, you know story arcs before we get to the actual story arc with him versus Tony Tony Stark in the future I believe it's called is the last arc in Fractions run so this kind of is like a little bit of an appetizer to get you thinking about the Mandarin but to be honest I feel like there could have been different things done to promote the Mandarin and get kind of wet the appetite of the people who were reading this book at the time to get excited for a Mandarin arc at some point but uh I don't know. I, I, I remember fondly liking this at one point or another, but to be honest, after rereading it, a little little disappointed. I don't know. What do you guys think? Did you forget this is part one of a three-part story? Because he doesn't die at the end of this. Oh, shit, he doesn't? Oh, he gets his eye, he gets his eye cut out. Oh, rip. I'm sorry. So, no, this is, this is one of the best Mandarin stories ever. Because he's just play, he just plays a part. He's just a presence throughout the whole thing, and it's really a horror story, because mm -hmm. the Mandarin has captured this guy, and it just shows how insane he is, because he wants the story of his life told, but 
it's all how he views it. So like he has a cover up of all the ways, but in reality, it's showing how much of a coward and horrible, despicable person he is by wanting to change history around it. And it only gets deeper as like you get to parts two and three, but like this whole point and also knowing like Iron Man's not coming to save this guy. Like the Avengers aren't going to bust down the walls. Like he's not getting saved. Mm-hmm. So it after he loses his eye, he takes it upon him where he's going to tell the true story and he kind of starts playing the, the Mandarin a different angle. And this lays the groundwork for showing how the, just the, the sheer hubris of the Mandarin that will get in Fraction's final arc in Iron Man, which, I mean, that gets muddled because he was supposed to have a whole other year on the book and it got rushed. But yeah, Vincible Iron Man Annual number one is really, really, really good. The, the, but it, you need to read parts two and three to get the full sense of the scope for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't... I, I mean, there may be follow-ups, but I think, I don't know that this is necessarily part one of three. Like, there may be plot Yes, it is. Points. I just read it, <laughs> like, not long ago. You can you can double-check. But but th- this issue, I, Dan talked about how it comes before the next Mandarin arc, that this is, it's, this always stood out to me because it comes basically right after, uh, like, issue 33, or not issue 30, whenever, like, Basically, there's a there's an opening chunk like the first two years of Fractions of Iron Man, which are considered like really really great, and they were crucial to a lot of the ongoing plot lines and status quo of the Marvel universe. And then this issue takes place like right after that, and then you have a bunch of chunk, which is like not as super exciting. And you also have a division there, as far as how they attempted to collect them, because that first chunk they put in a certain format and then they didn't do the rest. And this issue also falls immediately outside of that. So this issue was always like, it's like, well, do I get the next trade and then have a mixed format to get this one highlight issue? It's kind of a mess. Um, And also this issue, like, it's all a little iffy, but uh, by nature of the story, but this also does a lot of retcons and brings Iron Man's origin story in little bits and pieces, as well as parts of the Mandarin closer to the movies. Like this is where they get the, uh, like a lot, yeah, like a lot of the cave origin stuff um, and how the Mandarin interacted with Tony's origin is changed here. But I mean, it's, it's fine. JLA number three, Grant Morrison, Howard Porter. This part three of the new world order story encompasses the first four issues of the series. And 97, where they relaunched it, just Justice League is simply just JLA. And the, this is the big reveal here is that Batman did not die when his plane was shot down, I think, in issue two. It is their Justice League is battling the Hyper Clan. And they underestimated him and didn't even check to see if he was really dead. And this tips Batman off for discovering the Hyper Clan's weakness, as the Hyper Clan are kind of these alien visitors who have all the powers of the Justice League, but they're more powerful than Justice League. And they're starting to step in and kind of overtake the JLA. And they have Superman and Wonder Man chained up, so they're off the board here. And we have the, the Flash, who's trying to fight the, the Hyper Clan's version of the Flash. And he's building up to basically just punch them with a giant supersonic punch that sends <laughs> like sends him into orbit. And he's able to free Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern that way. And we get the we get the them backshotting each other because Wally's doesn't really like Kyle, which is something that carries on through this. They eventually learn to like each other, though. Um, but the whole rest of this issue is Batman, like, luring the members around on, like, the HyperClan ship and deactivating their tech and kind of making them go paranoid and crazy because they keep wondering how can just this simply one human man do all of this. 
Like he, he, he clearly can't be human then. And the tip off of the weakness is they didn't check the plane because there's fire, which lets Batman know that they're white Martians and from Mars, like Martian Manhunter. And so he basically, so he lights a match and throws it down and traps them in a circle of fire. And uh, <laughs> with uh, Superman, uh, the, the leader of the Hyper Clans, bringing more ships to Earth, uh, kind of going to stage a full-scale assault, and it's ended in the next issue. But yeah, this is kind of the, the big Bat-God issue that everyone talks about, which, you know, probably for worse, sets worse groundwork for Batman going forward. But, you know, it the, the first instance of it is always great. Yeah, this is... Pretty much has everything you want. There's kryptonite. There's flashbacks, with, which lead to the super punch, which is one of the most famous moments of this run. There's mecha fights for a brief moment. And then Bat God saving the day. And then a pretty major cliffhanger. So, I mean, the, yeah, it captures what was so exciting about Morrison's JLA and, and really being this high octane, you know, super high stakes fun ride. Plus, yeah. Howard Porter is just nailing everything on his art. I feel like my favorite parts from this issue were definitely the ones with Batman. I mean, he's just, I don't know, he kind of steals the issue for me in some ways. I just like all the all the scene, all the scenes he's in it are pretty awesome. So, Well, he gets the most screen time. Yeah, that's true. So, Moving on here, we get to Uncanny X-Men number 143, written by Chris Claremont with art by John Byrne. So uh, Mike can summarize this whole issue in one sentence, but I will go through a little bit more in detail here. So we get a flashback to the X-Men's first battle with a group of monsters. They're known as the Nagare. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Uh, First told in X-Men number 96 for you historians out there. So believing that this like portal was closed and no more of these aliens would come through, Storm and the other X-Men didn't think anything of it. So... Turns out that one of these monsters actually is loose and is terrorizing New York on Christmas Eve, where we actually see a couple that's finding their first, I, I'm assuming their first Christmas tree, and also commenting about how they can get a bigger Christmas tree once they get a house, end up both getting killed by this monster. So pretty dark beginning to this issue for us. And pretty much the rest of this issue is this monster making its way to X-Mansion, where all but Kitty Pride um, is there. Um, all right, all, all but Kitty Pride has left to go driving on a clear Christmas Eve night, and we don't really get an explanation as to where they're going, um, which is a little weird. But uh, all alone, Kitty finds herself face to face with this monster who has actually stormed the X Mansion and is attacking it. And during this whole time, we get a young Kitty Pride kind of figuring out how to dodge and escape this monster's grasp, uh, fighting with it in the danger room, phasing through a bunch of different different rooms and basically destroying the x mansion as it's as it's going on and she eventually ends up frying it with the thrusters of the blackbird which we actually get her learning how to use in the very beginning of the issue with professor x before they all leave to go on their drive so she's at she actually ends up destroying it with that pretty simple um and the whole team comes back with a surprise for kitty as they picked up her parents to celebrate christmas or the holiday uh even though she's jewish um i guess hanukkah fell on the same dates as christmas that year but and we also get a really uh cute moment between storm and uh, kitty pride who really have a close relationship at this point and will continue to grow that relationship as the years go on as uh, you know, Storm kind of asks her how her night went, and Katie's like, uh, "Yeah, I might have broken a few things, and uh, the Blackbird is out of commission." And Storm's like, "What?" 
<laughs> when she's like, I don't know if I should be mad or if I should be proud of you for, you know, and uh, it's just a really great moment. And Chris Claremont uh, nails it on the characterization. Uh, a little wordy here, but I still enjoyed it. And John Byrne's art is amazing as always. Uh, not really a lot of opportunities here for us to, for him to showcase his art. I guess the monster was great, but I don't know. I feel like where he really excels is his um, faces and art of the characters, which we don't really get a lot of besides Kitty in this book. So what do you guys think? You could say that, but like, I don't think John Byrne's Kitty Pride was ever particularly good because John Byrne can't draw kids. That's, that's his crutch is that John Byrne can't draw children. Mm-hmm. So I think you could have Byrne do a little bit more art if Claremont was able to pull back the scripting a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, also, you can sum this up as Kitty gets chased by an alien. That's the whole issue. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have that much to add. It is a classic issue. I will say on the trivia front that this is technically the second issue of Uncanny X-Men, and this is the final issue by John Byrne. Now, I'll ask you this, with kind of the Kitty solo stories, do you prefer this or Kitty's fairy tale? Because I prefer Kitty's fairy tale. Probably Kitty's fairy tale. The question is, do you prefer the Shadow and Flame miniseries by Akira Yoshida and Paul Smith? No. <laughs> it's Paul Smith. Yeah, but it's Akira Yoshida. X-Factor number 237. Peter David, David Yarden. This is kind of in the, the – as this book was kind of around before House of M and, you know, all the way up through after this. This is the post-schism years of this title as it's winding down. I think the final issue will be 250, 255. I can't exactly remember, but – Wolfsbane is locking herself away in a room, kind of isolating herself for the rest of the gang. And Polaris and, Sir- and Siren have kind of had enough of it. And they call for her to come on this mission, which is the only way they'll get her to leave. But it's really like a road trip to c- kind of set her straight. And Rain is dealing with like the trauma of killing her father and then abandoning her son, which I think killing her dad happened in X-Force. The son thing happened at the beginning of an X-Factor arc uh, when they brought her back because she was pregnant. And so it ha- that happened there because uh, she left to go be part of X-Force and then comes back. A lot of characters in the whole series kind of go in and go out. Um, but again, she's all kind of like scared about it and thinks she's beating herself up for the sins she's committed as she's a very religious character. And Polaris and Siren uh, take her to John, to the um, John Madrox, who's a preacher, who is one of Jamie's dupes that Jamie just let live and have his own life. Uh, so whenever the X Factor team is feeling down, they kind of go to him as kind of like talk themselves back up. They go there in a flying Mustang that Polaris uses to make fly. So there's pretty fun moments in that, but it's really just a conversation between John Madrox and Rain, kind of de- helping her deal through her pain. And to the point where like he gives her like a cat of nine tails, he's like, "Well, whip yourself if you feel all of this." And then she doesn't and learns that no, she can turn like the bad into good. And it kind of sets the part for the next big arc, which is dealing with uh, Wolfsbane's son, and she wants to go find him. So it it's kind of signaling like the last big arc that happens in the book. Um, I, I was figuring out whether I wanted to do this issue or the last issue, but the last issue really is satisfying with re- having read the whole entire run. Uh, this is just, just an, like a solid issue from a very kind of good series. I don't want to call it underrated because I think it is praised by people that liked it. But yeah, this is in like the lower end of when the title started kind of dropping off consistently. I think this is right around the time Peter David has a stroke as well, uh, which kind of things get shifted around as well. But it's it's just a solid issue of X Factor. I didn't pick it for any sentimental or great big connections reasons. I just wanted to pick an X Factor issue. Yep. Final issue is 262. 
Oh, so it went a lot longer than I thought. <laughs> and then, of course, there's all new X Factor. That's right. And on that, that is our finale. What's your pick of the week? Mine is going to be... Um, I don't know. I mean, it's actually hard on these weeks. Uh, I feel like I could give it to most of the books I picked. I'm going to give it to Four Color. Oh, you are. Just because... Um, I mean, that was the one that was most surprising. That was one of the few that I read that I actually hadn't read before. I just kind of picked it out of the hat because I knew, knew of its significance. I'm happy you say that before because before Dan says criminal, I was actually also going to say Four Color Comics number 386 <laughs> for wow. the same reasons. Yeah, yeah, because like the other, especially these two that I, or no, not these two, these two, like these are two of my, you know, all-time favorite issues, like, no, no doubt. So, but it's like, what, what's the point in really picking them? I just want to point out for the audio listeners, he's talking about Astro yeah. City and Action Comics. Correct. Correct. Go ahead, Dan. Hey, what's your pick? I mean, Mike already said mine, so I'm not gonna say it. Is that actually it? Oh, yeah. No, it's okay. it, it's a criminal issue. Dan always picks criminal. Even though it is, it, it it actually is my book too. So, yep. Well, you chose your book the last time too. Me and Vince chose each other's. Well, my book. The best that's your opinion all right thanks for watching this next week might be different or it might be a combination of different we have real comics coming out real new comics coming out next week yeah so tune in next time to see what the hell we do bye bye